Good morning, everybody. Hope you're having a wonderful Sunday morning and you've got a hot cup of coffee sitting in your favorite seat or wherever you're at today. Maybe you're at uh, Starbucks, you're at a coffee shop. <clears throat> Maybe you're with an, a group of people. I know we have groups of people that gather together uh, for fellowship and watch the Digital Cathedral for their, their church teaching every Sunday morning. So it's good to have you with me, whatever the situation, wherever you're at. If you're by yourself this morning, no, you're not really by yourself. You're part of a larger group of people called the Digital Cathedral. And as I look out this morning, I see so many smiling faces, loving people, people that are growing by leaps and bounds from all over the world, being knit together. Isn't it amazing how God connects us today? I mean, a few years ago, who would have thought that we could join together with people from other nations on Sunday morning and learn the Word of God together, learn how to be strengthened in our faith, learn what God is saying to us today, and have it resonate in our spirit with people in other nations. God's doing a wonderful work today. It's a, it's a tsunami of love and grace and mercy. I'll tell you what, I, I, I'm totally enjoying everything the Father is saying and doing today, and I trust that you are too. All right, what we want to cover today is Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 19. Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 19. But before we get there, I want to give you a little bit of understanding in an area that's important as we come through these writings of Paul. So I'd like to start today at 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I want to look at this for just a few minutes, and we'll get into our Galatians passage. Sometimes I feel like I just want to give you some good foundation, good base. So as we come through the writings of Paul, you'll understand what he's really trying to get across from his perspective. I believe Paul's stepping out of the cloud of witnesses sometimes, and he's helping us to understand his writings on a level that we haven't understood him in the past. In writing to Timothy, Paul said this. Paul said this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. He said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We've all heard that scripture. We've all read that. And that has been the basis on, upon which fundamentalist evangelicals have said that uh, the Bible is totally inerrant because it says in verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, instruction, so on and so forth. There's something I want to point out. Be because we're going through some of Paul's writings chapter by chapter, I want to take a few minutes and shed some light on what Paul meant when he told Timothy that all scripture is inspired by God. First of all, I don't know if you have discovered this or you know this, but in that 16th verse, the word is, is not in the original. If you have a, a Young's literal translation or a concordant literal translation, you'll see that the, the word is in brackets or sometimes it's in italics, depending on what literal translation you're using which throws an entirely different perspective on what Paul is saying. 
when we say that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, instruction, when we say that it, all scripture is, it, it's implying that everything that is in the Bible is inspired. Now, when you remove the word is out of there, it takes on a totally different meaning. Let me read it for you without the word is. All scripture given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. When you take the is out of there and just say all scripture inspired by God, it's different than saying all scripture is inspired by God. Are, do, you see the, do you see the difference? Saying that all scripture inspired by God <clears throat> opens the door to the fact that maybe some of it is not inspired. Wow. Am I saying it's all not inspired? Well, let's talk about what inspired is. I want, to, I want you to understand that when Paul wrote these letters that we're studying, he had absolutely no clue that there would be a Bible one day of 66 books, 39 of the old, 27 of the new. Paul had absolutely no idea that what he was writing to these churches would be included in the Bible, that there would even be a Bible. So he's, he's writing, he's writing, we're going through Galatians, he's writing to those Christians in southern Turkey, he's writing to them to address situations and problems that were specific to them. Same way in Ephesus, Philippi, and Colossae. He's writing to a, a group of believers and addressing situations and problems that were peculiar to them. He's writing to encourage them. And each region or each city had different needs facing different dilemmas. So you have to get in mind that these letters are two particular groups of people. Ephesians 1.1, he makes it plain he's writing to the church at Ephesus. Philippians 1.1 makes it, it obvious he's writing to the, to the Christians at Philippi. Colossians chapter 1, verse 2, after his little greeting, then he writes to the church at Colossae. So what, what he said to the church at Ephesus may apply or it may not apply to the church at Philippi. What he says at Philippi may, may not apply to the Christians at Colossae. It's, it's like you giving instruction, if you're raising children, you might give instruction to one child that would not be relevant to another child. Let's, let, let me give you a quick example. Let's say you have one child. Let's say you have a, a, a child that's not very motivated in school. And so this child, you're telling, look, you can do better. Uh, I want you to get your grades up. Uh, you need to spend more time in study. When you come home, I don't want you going outside to play till you get your homework done. Uh, I'm going to be looking closely at your grades, and I, you, you better get on the ball. All right, now let's say you got another child over here that is really excelling in school, diligent, disciplined in their studies, gets all A's. <clears throat> if, if what you said to this child over here were to be taken by this child at heart that is doing well, getting all A's, diligent, he may have a nervous breakdown because you, he's hearing you say you're not doing good enough, you're not doing well enough, I want you to get your grades up, you need to spend more study time. What you, said, what you said to the first one is absolutely not apropos of what you said to the second one. So when, when we read the writings of Paul, you need to come into full realization 
of who he's speaking to and, and the problems and what he's trying to get across to each of them, sometimes it's different. Now, we, that doesn't mean you can't learn from it, but you need to understand that it's not written to you. It, it's written for us, but not to us. I've gone through that explanation in the past. The spirit of truth is the inerrant guide. The spirit of truth will take what he says in one letter and break it down for you. There have been times I've read through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, and as I read through it, I would see something entirely different. The spirit of truth would bring something that's not in, in black and white and will all of a sudden make it true and relevant in my life. So that the spirit of truth is the inerrant guide, which brings me to what I want to say. I want to go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, and I want to make some comments about that. I want to give you some understanding in an area. Let me read this again. All scripture, it should read, all scripture given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and righteousness sake, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word inspired there, the word inspiration means God breathed or contains the breath of God. That's what, that's what the Greek for inspiration means. It means that it's God breathed. And I think that's probably why people have said, well, it's God breathed. It has the breath of God on it. Therefore, it is inspired. It is, it is inerrant. Uh, but I want to remind you that everything God breathes on is not air free. Didn't God breathe the breath of life into Adam? Was Adam air free? <laughs> I don't think so. I, don't you and I contain the breath of God? We wouldn't be alive if we didn't have the breath of God within us. It is the breath of God that we inhale and exhale. It's, it's, the, very light, it's the very essence of life. Are we inerrant? Do we make mistakes? Are, are we infallible? Absolutely not. I, I think to say that because something is God-breathed, that it's totally inerrant is to be a little bit presumptuous. It's to make, some, it's to make a, a quantum leap that I'm not sure the father ever meant to make when Paul was writing to Timothy. Now, there, there are two specific beliefs, and here's what I want to implant into your spirit this morning. There are two specific theories or beliefs on how God breathed or how he inspired Scripture. There's, there's two methods of inspiration that I want to acquaint you with. The first one is called the dictation or verbal inspiration theory. This theory says that the human role in writing the scripture was purely mechanical. That God through the Holy Spirit told the writers word for word what to write. That view takes the, the, the position that the Bible was like an executive who's God dictating a letter to his administrative assistant, which was the Bible writer. And the administrative assistant would, would take in shorthand, which I don't know if he, people even write shorthand anymore. The, the administrative assistant would take in shorthand, word for word exactly, what the executive wanted penned in the letter to be sent to somebody else. The, the writer in, in the dictation theory, the writer was totally under the control of God. Right? He was, the writer was just an instrument. Fundamentalist, evangelicals hold to this dictation theory. 
And dictation theory people are the ones, they are the King James Version only people, right? They're the King James Version only people. Every other, every other uh, version of the Bible is totally mistaken. And I'll tell you why they say that. They believe in, <clears throat> in a theological term called sola scripture. Sola scripture is the idea that only scripture contains the authority for faith and practice. That's, what, that's the definition of sola scripture. That the Bible, that scripture is the only authority for faith and practice. It is the absolute, it is the, it is the creme de la creme. There's absolutely no place for any revelation outside of a literal interpretation of the Bible. There's, there's absolutely uh, no, no truth that you can find that is outside the Bible. The Bible addresses every problem perfectly. And this is the group of people that use the Bible to prove the Bible. You know, every, every, everything you say, they will say, well, the Bible says. Or what about this? Well, this is what the Bible says. Now, of, of course, the authority and the practice that is allowed or is viewed as absolute truth is what the church or the denomination says it is. That's why we have 41,000 denominations today that all claim the Bible and what it clearly says as their foundation. They're coming at it from their interpretation of what the Bible literally says. King James Version only. The reason being, every other version diverts from the King James. And when you read the NIV or, or the Good News or the Mirror or whatever translation you like to read, you may see a little bit different slant than what the King James Version would say. And they, they would, would use a verse like, okay, Revelation chapter, what is it? Revelation chapter 22, long about verse 19. It says, anybody that adds to the Bible, adds to Scripture, or takes away from Scripture will be cursed. And of course, the Scripture is the King James Version. So anytime you divert off of the King James Version, then there is a curse that is placed on you. So those who tell you, what the Bible clearly says are basing the clearly on their view of what the Bible says. So King James Version, people say every other Bible translation is an adding to or it's a taking from, therefore it's a blasphemy. Maybe you've seen those little charts where they say, here's what the King James says and here's what this version says and this one says. Look how air, look how filled with air this is. But our view, our version, our interpretation of this is absolutely faultless and spotless. So if you're reading these other versions, you're adding to or you're taking from. Isn't it amazing? That this whole strain of thought says we believe what the Bible clearly says and what it clearly says is what we say that it says. The Protestant church has made fun of the Catholic church because we've said, well, you know, the Catholic church, a lot of those people, when the service was in Latin, they couldn't even read the Bible. They didn't even know what the Bible said. They just believed what the church told them. In Protestantism, we've done the same thing. We've believed what the Baptist church, if you're Baptist, you believe what the Baptists tell you. If you're Presbyterian, you believe in predestination and what they've told you about in those scriptures. You believe that's what the Bible clearly teaches. If 
you're charismatic, you believe, you know, what the Bible clearly says about the gifts. And the Baptist says, well, I believe what it clearly says about the gifts that they passed away. And, and, and you say, well, no, I believe what the Bible clearly says that we will have the gifts till we all come to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. We're not mature. We're not in the unity of the faith. So when the prophets and pastors teach us about the gifts, then those things are valid for today. The dictation theory is very strict by the letter interpretation. The, the caveat, of course, is the strict interpretation is what the authorities say that it is. So you understand, that's the dictation theory. The dictation theory is held by fundamentalists, evangelicals. God gave the, the scripture word for word to the writers. The writers just put their hand on the paper and wrote what God said word for word. With, and, and of course, that's the King James Version. That's the word for word. I'm grinning when I say that. The other theory is plenary inspiration. Plenary, P-L-E-N-A-R-Y, plenary inspiration. This is the idea that God through the Holy Spirit gave the thought or the idea and then guided or inspired the writer as the writer wrote the thoughts. That the Father, that the Holy Spirit inspired areas or topics or thoughts, but then the writer had liberty to express what he said under guidance from the Holy Spirit. And this, this leaves room for the personality of the writer, the style of the writer. And you can, you can very distinctly see different writing styles between the different authors of the Bible. So we've, we've got, if, if, if it were a dictation, it would all come out with the same type of personality. But it doesn't. It, it leaves room for you. On a plenary inspiration, it leaves room for you to see beyond what the writer is saying when you see the thought, the spirit of truth then can begin to inspire you to see beyond what the writer wrote. The dictation theory leaves just the black and white or the red and white without regard to any other thought than what, well, the Bible says. The dictation will even take words like hell, that never appear in the original languages. Words like saved and totally redefine it to mean that means a ticket to heaven or if you're not saved, you're going to hell. That's not what saved means. Saved means wholeness, fullness, completeness. But because the authorities have defined the word saved, when you re read the word saved in the Bible or you read the word hell in the Bible, even though it's not in the Bible... Because the authorities say this is what it means and you believe in dictation theory, then there's absolutely no room for variance in definition or interpretation. In a plenary inspiration, you can meditate and you can allow the spirit of truth to unveil or take you into a place beyond the black and white or the, the red and white. The word can go... The word can go deeper. The recorded word can go deeper than face value. Now this, this allows you, the plenary inspiration allows you to explore the depths of a God that is beyond the words on I think you can understand how those that adhere to a dictation theory have made the Bible God. 
the fourth member of the Godhead, because every word was dictated by God. Therefore, this, this is God himself that has said every word. Where the plenary inspiration says the topics, the thoughts, the ideas came to the writer from God, but then the writer began to uh, exercise some freedom in the expression of those thoughts and those ideas and those topics under the direction of the Holy Spirit. So you can begin now to also see that same inspiration in other places, in other books, in other writings. But the dictation theory does not allow for that kind of latitude. Right? right? I, you know, I've heard, I've heard a lot of teaching that is very inspired. That is very God-breathed. Does that mean that it has no air? Absolutely not. I, I pastored for 35 years teaching a mixed message. Were there times that I knew that I was speaking under an unction that was not me? Absolutely. Does that mean that what I was saying was error-free? Absolutely not. I'm, what I'm teaching you this morning, in five years from now, I may look back on it and say, I should have tweaked it. I see it a little differently now. As the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, as we move into deeper dimensions, revelation becomes stronger. The picture becomes sharper and clearer. We have to allow for adjustments as we go. Look, this is a journey, man. We're learning on the fly. There's been no people that have gone the way we're going. You can't expect it to be absolutely error-free. We depend on the spirit of truth to guide us into all truth. So we are quick to repent. We're quick to change our minds when we see something we never saw before. Now, with the dictation theory, you're not allowed that liberty. Fundamentalists get a doctrine set in concrete and there's no variation from it. There's no increasing it. There's, there's no clarification on it. It becomes very set. You go to church every Sunday, you hear the same message, the same truth. It's just presented time and time again. And with repetition, it becomes so ground in that we don't question it. All right, I'm going to start with that. Because, but I just wanted to lay that down for you. I think it's important as we develop in our sonship, which is what this is all about. The call of the day is manifesting as sons of God, daughters of God, fully matured, coming to a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, unity of the faith. He's bringing us to that place rapidly. But in order to get there, we have to also see exactly what he's trying to teach us from his word. All right, let's get over quickly to Galatians chapter 4. And let's cover those, those verses 8 through 20. That's a, that's a big swath, but I think we can do it. Galatians chapter 4, let's pick it up in verse, verse 8. Paul says, but then indeed when you did not know God... You serve those which by nature are not gods. Now remember, he just, he just got through the, the dissertation on sonship. We spent two weeks on the first seven verses. We talked two weeks ago about the servant-son principle. Last week, I traced for you the progression of sonship uh, from napios, immature, to pation, toddler, technon, teenager, weos, mature son. If you didn't hear last Sunday's teaching, you need to go back and get it because now he's going to move on and he's going to begin to kind of lay out some things about where they're at and what they need 
to understand about their development as they come through this process. He, so he says in verse 8, Indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. What's Paul saying there? He's saying when you didn't know God, when, when you had not received the revelation of who, who he really is, how he really is, his character, his nature. He said when the spirit of truth had not unveiled. And the reason that more unveiling does not come is because of preconceived notions and ideas. The faster that we can get rid of preconceived notions and ideas and cut those cords and bonds off of us, the more clearly we can see. So Paul says, when you didn't know God, when he, when he really hadn't been revealed to you, you, you served a God that really was not God. I could say it like this. You served a God that you created in your mind. You, you served a God that you were told about at church or somebody else imparted to you that really was not God, that was by nature was not God, wasn't the real deal. What, what the spirit of truth today is doing is this. He's breaking the father out of the box of tradition that we've put him in. And we're beginning to look at Jesus as being the full representation of the father. The Old Testament was not an accurate presentation and representation of the father. Jesus came to clear up all that mess. Elijah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel could never say, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Jesus was the one that came on the scene and said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus came to clear up that mess. The spirit of truth today is taking the Father, he's taking God out of that box that we conceived and put him in. And he's unveiling him for who he really is. But Paul says in that eighth verse, when you did not know God, when he had not been revealed, he says, you served those which by nature, which is love, they were not by love, they were not God. So we're seeing it more clearly today. Through Jesus. John wrote in 2 John, what is it, chapter 3, verse 2, he said, beloved, now are we the sons of God? We're the sons of God now? Absolutely. But it has not re been revealed what we shall be. Oh, I should have thrown that verse in last week on the sonship development. That is a good one. It has not yet been revealed. You haven't seen, you haven't gotten all that you're going to be. He's, but John said this, we know that when he shall appear, when he's revealed, doesn't mean second coming. When he uh, appears, doesn't mean second coming. It means when we get a revelation of him. We will be like him. Because we'll see him as he is. That's where we're digging in. That's where we're placing our emphasis. It's not on, on, on a God that hasn't been revealed to us. There's, he has been revealed, and the more he's revealed, the more like him we become. Let me break this down gently. Most of us have served, if we're still not serving, a God of Adam's making, a false perception. Adam created a God who he thought was angry, judgmental, punitive, and totally separated from us. And that's the God Adam created in his mind. Did God ever, did the Father ever act in anger toward Adam? No. 
Was the father ever judgmental, a mean judgmental harshness toward Adam? No. He was totally protective of Adam. He moved him out of the garden. He moved him from the tree of life, lest Adam eat from that tree and live in a condition that was far below the father's plan for him for all eternity. He protected him. Was the father ever, was the father ever separated from Adam? No, he wasn't. He, all, he went and found Adam. He escorted him. He didn't, he didn't throw him out on his ear. He escorted him. He drove him from the garden. Now, I, I, was, I was taught the God of Adam's perception. That, that misconceived, ill-conceived God that Adam created in his mind that God never was, was passed down from generation to generation until today, thousands and thousands of years later, that God has become, that false perception has become so ingrained in our minds and our thinking that when someone comes along and begins to teach the father of the representation of Jesus and the father that looks like Jesus, we look at that and say, that is false, that cannot be. We believe a lie when the truth sounds better. Why is that? Because we've heard it over and over and over and over again. There was no such God as the God that Adam created in his mind. Listen to me. And since there is no God like the God Adam created in his mind and in that fallen state of mind passed it down through generations... Is it any wonder that we have had problems trying to develop a relationship with a God who never was? Kaboom! <laughs> you could, it's hard to get close to a God that never was. Always trying to guide us back to how he really was. There's, there's no such God. No wonder we had problems in, in trying to Develop relationship, fellowship, feeling the presence of a God that never was. Amen? Fact is, he's closer than our next breath. Here's what Jesus said in John 14, 20. This is the crux of the gospel. Jesus said, in that day you'll know that I'm in the Father, and you're in me and I'm in you. The Father and the Son and us are all intertwined. We are in union one together. Does that sound like the God that Adam created in his mind that is, that is angry, judgmental, punitive, and separated from us? That's no separation in that. There's no judgmental in that. That's a love. That's a fellowship. That's a relationship. So, so he tells them, he says, guys, listen, when you didn't know God, you were over here serving these these things that by nature were no gods. You were off into, into paganism. You were worshiping trees and wind and sky and stars. Verse 9, but now after you have known God or whether are known by God, how is it that you turn again back to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? Verse 9, he's saying, look, you've, Galatians, you've had this two-way discovery. And I would say to all of us here at the Digital Cathedral, we've embarked on this two-way discovery. First of all, we've come to know who, who God is. We've come to understand that he is the father of all. Ephesians 4, 6, there's one God and father who is above all, through all, and in all. One father of all. 
Doesn't matter whether you recognize him as that or not, that's who he is. Now, it's, it's much to your advantage to recognize who he is and live in who he is, but there are thousands of people today sitting in churches have no idea that he's the father of all. They think he's only the father of those that believe like we do or have done what we have done, that have prayed the magic prayer, been dipped in water, spoken in tongues. He, he, those are the only ones he's the father of. That's not, that's not what he reveals himself as. He reveals himself as the father of all. He's above all, through all, and in all. So that's, that's, that's a one-way discovery. And Paul said, Galatians, you discovered that. But Paul said, there's another thing that you discovered. You, you discovered the way that he has always seen you. Look how he says it in verse 9. But now after you have known God one way, but whether are, are known by God, him knowing back this way, after you have that two-way understanding, that two-way revelation, you, you're, you're, you're seeing yourself like he's always seeing you. Man, that is, that is a dynamic revelation right there. Knowing you like he's always known you. Seeing you like he's always seeing you. You begin to see, man, that, that God, he's nothing like the God that Adam planted in our mind or the God that Moses wrote about. This two-way discovery, knowing him and seeing us like he sees us opens the door. I'm telling you what, it opens the door to tremendous revelation. All right, let's move on to verse 10. Verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years, you've gone back, you've adopted man-made standards, Galatians. And I would say to you that when you adopt man-made standards, you have of necessity, you have to adopt a man-made God who demands that you keep the man-made standards. God, God never wanted to rule by laws. That was never God's plan. In fact, I don't know if you know, but God never wanted animal sacrifice. God never desired blood sacrifice. Can I read it for you from the Bible? Some of you may not be aware of that fact. In, in Psalm chapter 51 and verse 16, David said this, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. Watch. You do not delight in burnt offerings. God never wanted that kind of offering. It was man that wanted the laws. The children of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, God wants all of them to come up to know him, to have fellowship with him. And the people said, no, 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 Moses. We're afraid to go up there. Moses, you go up there and find out what he wants us to do. You come back down, tell us what he wants us to do, and we will be glad to do it. That's how the birth of the law came. Animal sacrifice. Man, man needed a way to cleanse his conscience, to make him feel that he was in right position with God. God never needed anybody to kill a bull, a lamb, a dove, anything as a, in the way of an animal sacrifice. That was an institution that man created and God went along with it because it made man feel good. Jesus, Jesus said a lot. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, 
All of this hangs on two things. All the law, all the prophets, everything hangs on two things. He said, all you, all you need to really develop in is love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And when you do that, there's something that happens. You'll love your neighbor as yourself. You can't help but love your neighbor as yourself with an unselfish love, a giving love. When, when you have developed the love that you have for the Father. The Father's love now envelops you. And out of that enveloping of the Father's love, there comes a natural flow of loving your neighbor as yourself. Takes all the law, all the prophets out of it. All right, let, I lost my place. Let's come back to Galatians chapter 4. This is good stuff. Galatians chapter 4, let me read verses 12 to 15. He said, Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I've become like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of, of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you didn't despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Paul said, Paul's saying in, in verses 12 to 15, guys, we developed this relationship together. You helped me. I helped you. You had great respect for me. You, you received me like you would Christ Jesus. We walked in, in high places together. We found revelation together. I imparted truth to you and you received it and you embraced me. In verse 16 through 20, he says, but, but we got a problem. Something happened here. He said, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Now what's happening here is religion snuck back in and said, that guy Paul, he's not telling you the whole story. There's some laws you've got to keep. You need to get circumcised. You need to keep the law. You, you, you need to watch the way you live. You've got to get holy before God. You can't go to movies. can't dance. Don't smoke. Don't drink. Paul, Paul didn't tell you the whole story. He said, they zealously court you. Religion zealously court you, but, but not for good. They want to exclude you. They want to separate you, that you might become zealous, that you might become entrenched in their doctrines. He said, it's good to be zealous in a good thing, and not only when I'm present with you, right? Not just when I'm present with you. Verse 19, my little children of whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone for I have a lot of doubts about you. I know you're going through some real trouble. What, what, what is Paul getting at in verses 16 to 20? Paul is saying, guys, religion has crept back in. And verse 16 points out, it always tries to alienate you. Religion will always try to alienate you from the truth, from the simplicity of the gospel, from grace plus nothing. Religion doesn't want you hearing grace plus, Jesus plus nothing. It wants you to get sold on, and so they separate you, sold on Jesus plus whatever it is they're peddling. A lot of us have had our pastor tell us don't read that book. 
Don't you dare go over there to that conference and hear those speakers. They are of the devil. They are in air. What is, what is religion trying to do? It's trying to move you. It's trying to separate you from further truth than what they're presenting to you. They want to keep you as a pation, as an infant, not growing, but dependent on what they say. And it does it by verse 17, by putting you outside grace to get you hooked back into what you have been delivered from. Sometimes you've got to let go of friends that you had back in religion because they're always trying to pull you back. The best thing you can do is just love them but stay a distance. You know, as you have an opportunity, teach the minister the love and grace of God. What, what he said in verse 16 is so true. Paul said, if I be, all of a sudden now, have I become your enemy because I'm teaching you the truth? Are you, are you listening to this religious garbage over here? Have you gotten yourself back ensnared that way? Have I now become an enemy to you because I was the one that brought you to truth? That is so, that happens so much in life. A lot of people will break fellowship and walk away from you because you no longer believe the same that they believe. It happens time and time again. We, we, we found out, you know what you find out? You find out you weren't really friends. Re religion builds fellowship around like beliefs, like doctrines. We got all the Baptists over here. We got the Presbyterians here. We got the Methodists over here. We got the Assemblies of God over here. And they all have rallied or grouped around what they believe. There's no, there will be no unity of the faith as long as we group up by what we believe, and we're not willing to understand and accept somebody that believes it a little different than what we believe it. Look, don't, here's the offense with those, don't let it become offense when, you, when friends break from you. I know it stings, I know it hurts. Don't take offense. It is, it is what it is. You become the reflection of what it is that you believe. You become the reflection of the love and the grace that you believe in. The, the kryptonite to religion is grace, and religion will not want to be around pure grace. By definition, they are diametrically opposed to one another. Cults do all the time what Paul's talking about in this passage of Scripture. They separate even from their own families when the family no longer believes the same. The separation, Paul said, is to bring you back in bondage. It is to indoctrinate you. And, and they will use verses like this. The verses are, is really about them. But they turn the verses to be about you. Watch, 2 Thessalonians. This, I've heard this one a lot. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the gathering together in him, we ask you <clears throat> not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter from us as though the day of the Lord had come. Let nobody deceive you. Religion will look at you. Don't let those grace people deceive you by any means for that day will not come unless there's a falling away. Religion points at you and me and says, that's the falling away right there. Look at that. They're falling away from the rapture. They're falling away from believing in a literal eternal conscious torment. They have fallen away from the faith. They have fallen away from believing that the Bible is totally inerrant, that, it, that, 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 that that's the only guide there is in the truth. They're falling away from the truth. They will point to you when in reality they are the ones that have fallen away. 
They have fallen away from the pure gospel of Paul. But we don't need to throw that in their face. But I'm just saying it for you today to know that when that kind of thing happens, you can, you can be well assured that you're not the first person that it's happened to. Unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of, perdit, of, of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above everything that's called God. This is what's going on in religion today. And yet religion points to you and says, that's you. So Paul comes down in verse 18. He says, if you want to be zealous, be zealous for grace. Be zealous for a good thing. Here's, here's a telltale sign of grace. That grace has really set you free. The Galatians were napiases in this grace message. The telltale sign of, of grace is that you can be the same person no matter who you're with. And you can accept other people right where they are. Okay? Paul, in verse 18, earmarks hypocrisy. And he says, you change depending on who you're with. You become like a spiritual chameleon. You change colors. You're with the Baptist, you're like the Baptist. You don't believe in all this grace stuff. You're with the grace people, then you don't like legalism. The, verse, the conclusion that Paul comes to in verse 19, the solution to it, Paul said, of going back and forth from grace to religion, grace to law, grace to law, grace to religion, flopping back and forth. He said, I'm going to travail. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to enter in until... Christ is revealed in you until he's fully formed in you. Was the fullness of Christ already in them? Absolutely he was. The fullness of Christ already indwelt them. The spirit of truth was in them. But what Paul was saying is, I, I want this Christ that is in you to be fully unveiled. I want, I want everything that is to come to the surface. So the travail or the labor of Paul that he's speaking of is a full realization. It was in there. They didn't, they, they hadn't come to a place in their journey, in their walk, in their sonship development when they could, when they could fully grasp it. Colossians 2.9 says that in Jesus dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Then in verse 10 it says, and you're complete in this one in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. The fullness of the Godhead dwells within you. And the way to know its expression is when you can be the same Every day of the week, with whatever group of people you're with, you are you, and you just let him begin to come forth out of you. So Paul says, you know what? I'm going to pray that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened. That you know what the hope of the calling is that you have in Christ Jesus. That, that eye-opening is progressive. It happens a little at a time. Remember back when you first got grace, like your eyes opened just a little bit, you saw just a little bit, but that made you hunger for more and your eyes opened further. And now you want to devote, man, you can't wait to get the next, you can't wait to get the next unveiling, the next piece of the puzzle. You're hungry for more. That's a good sign, man. If you're growing people ought to be hungry. If you're hungry to get more and more of this, to be more and more like him, then that's a good sign. Now see, there is a, there is a progress, progression to this, right? In Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 18, he talks us, talks us about being led by the Spirit. You should be more led by the Spirit today than you are at any other time. 
He talks in verses 17 and 18 of, of Romans chapter 8 about fellowship of his sufferings. That we might manifest the glory. The, 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 this process matures us as it did Paul, who could finally say, as Paul came through the maturing process, he could say, his grace is sufficient for me. What triggered Paul saying his grace is sufficient for his strength is made perfect in weakness? It was the thorn in the flesh that he prayed three times to get rid of. See, we're praying to get rid of stuff that God says, I'm trying to show my grace and strength through that weakness. Now, what was Paul's thorn in the flesh a physical problem? I don't think so. I think the thorn in the flesh that followed Paul, the messenger of Satan, everywhere he went was the Judaizers. These people that came and hammered law, 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 law on top of Paul's grace message, they just, they bugged the heck out of Paul. And he's saying, God, take them away, take them away, get them out of here. And God says, no, I'm not going to do it. He said, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Yet you get what he's saying there? So then Paul could say, it's no longer I who lives, it's Christ that lives in me. You can't come to that place until he has shown himself strong and able in every situation that you face. Finally, Paul could say, I finished my course, I've run the race, I've kept the faith. The book of Galatians is trying to help them to throw off the baggage, the excess ties and bonds and weights. Paul is writing to the Galatians to get them consistent in their faith. And what was creating the consistency or the patience in their faith was the circumstances of religion pushing back against them. I told you last week that patience is consistency under pressure. You will never know patience until pressure pushes and you learn consistency. That's what the book of Galatians is about. Finally, you can say, God, you know what? God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. All right, that, that brings us down through verse 20. So next week, we're going to pick it up with Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. It will finish the chapter. And then we're going to get into Galatians 5 and 6, which contains some things. I can't wait to get to Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. All the books are good. Galatians is really the foundation. It's the grace foundation. If you, don't, if you don't get Galatians and get cut free from religion and let grace do a work in you, when we get to Ephesians and he starts talking about who you've always been and your identity as divinity, you're going to be lost. Get yourself free. Cut the bonds, cut the cords, cut the chains. And let's begin to walk in the manifestation of everything that Paul has taught us up through these first Four chapters of Galatians. All right, Wednesday night, we'll take it a little bit further. Remember, I'm on my Don Keithley Ministry Facebook page. If you haven't joined that, just go up to your search bar on Facebook, put Don Keithley Ministries, click it, come over and request to join, and I'll accept you into membership. It's a closed group. It's a safe group. It's a great place to bring your friends. There's no arguing, bickering, haggling. Uh, I won't allow it on that page. It's a place where we can express our views and opinions and grow together safely. So feel free to come over and post. 
Uh, I don't like a lot of other teaching videos, but I like your expressions. I like your posts and your questions to come on that page. See you Wednesday night on that page. Next week, we'll come back. Galatians 4, we'll finish out the chapter. Father, I just pray right now that you take what we've talked about this morning and may it manifest in it. May that word become our flesh. And may we walk it out with boldness this week, wherever we are and whoever we encounter. May they see it in us as we've presented it this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week. I want to take just a minute and thank all of you for being part of the Digital Cathedral and to just request your help in a couple of areas. There's two or three things that you can help us do to put this message around the world. First of all, if you have enjoyed the message, I'd like for you to go down on the YouTube and make a comment. Make a good affirmative comment because many people go down and read the comments before they watch the video to get an idea if it's favored or not favored. Second thing is you can share it on Facebook. Make sure that you hit us real strong on social media. Third thing is you can, you can do to help us is to become a monthly partner in support of what we're doing to keep this gospel of grace going around the world. This year in 2020, there's several things that I would like to get done, but it requires some finances. I'd like to expand the ministry. I'd like for us to become more effective in our marketing and in our production of what we're doing. So you can help us become a monthly partner, share on Facebook, and make good comments on YouTube. Thank you so much for being part of the Digital Cathedral. I bless all of you from around the world and hope that this message today as well as every week is a blessing to you. God bless you. We'll see you next week.